All right. With that said, I don't think that Dr. Stock really needs a whole lot of introduction, but um, I'm going to bring him up right now and let him introduce himself. So let's welcome Dr. Daniel Stock. Thanks, guys. Um, I used to do theater. You really shouldn't clap for somebody until after their performance is appreciated, because <laughs> if I stink, you can't take it back. Um, so I'm sure many of you have heard that I pull the wings off flies, kick my dog, fork my cat, and uh, don't love Jesus, because uh, I've accused of a whole bunch of things. Um, I usually start off a lecture like this saying, look, if I just admit to all of that, can we get down to the data? Because uh, at the end of the day, guys, Andy can probably tell you this better than most because he's heard me spout off, and I can go on for two and a half hours on data because I am that boring, okay? Um, but my goal is that everybody have a chance to make a full and complete decision on what they think their government has done in handling COVID-19. And I'm just going to tell you that I'm hoping by the time you're through with this lecture uh, that you are going to consider um, what I'm going to speak about last and most importantly, which is the Convention of States Organization. Because I suspect after I get through with this lecture, if you're like me, you're probably going to want to learn more about that organization. So I'm going to break this up into four parts, uh, starting off with how did your federal government do on its accuracy of assigning resources for COVID-19 relative to all the other diseases that it had to manage? All right. In other words, how did we do getting the diagnosis right? So first thing you need to know as we make that discussion is how did it count diagnoses of infectious diseases before March of 2020? So before March of 2020, if you wanted to be diagnosed with a disease, you had to have the typical symptoms of that disease. So if you had influenza, you had to have fever, chills, cough, severe aches, a little bit of sore throat, minimal nasal symptoms to go along with it. You had to have a positive validated test. And by a validated test, you had to have a test that with about 90% certainty could tell you that these are the levels we see in everybody else who has these symptoms. And we, with 90% certainty, can tell you we don't see anybody who doesn't have these symptoms having these levels. And then you could not have any other test from some other pathogen be positive. So if you want to have influenza, you can't have those symptoms, a positive influenza test and a positive test for respiratory syncytial virus. All right. And then if you want to die from influenza, if we're going to count you as an influenza death, you actually have to have all of those three criteria Plus, you had to die from a disease process that was not going on at the time the symptoms began. So if you got really bad congestive heart failure for the last seven years and you come down with influenza and it exacerbated your heart failure and you died from, from heart failure, you were not allowed to be an influenza death. And it was upon those criteria that we were deciding that this is how bad influenza is, this is how bad RSV is, this is how bad pneumococcal pneumonia is. So in March of 2020, the CDC changed the diagnostic criteria for one and only one disease. Does anybody want to guess what that disease was? That's right, it was COVID-19. By the way, I'm going to stop here to mention that that change in that diagnostic criteria was frankly illegal and they're being sued for it right now. Why was it illegal? Because those reporting criteria are a federal regulation. And to change a federal regulation requires a 60-day comment period where anybody can call in and make a comment. Um, and then after that 60 days, you're allowed to change it. That's required. 
so that some like me, when they come out and say, hey, we're gonna change the diagnostic criteria for one disease, can look at the criteria and then call up the people at the CDC and say something like, what are you smoking? Uh, you're gonna really inflate the diagnosis rate if you do this. And those comments, by the way, have to be publicly recorded. And the CDC said, you know what, the law says we have to do that, but we're just gonna skip it. And so they completely did away with that comment period. So, uh, avoiding any input from anybody else in the country, how did they make the change? They said, well, to diagnose COVID-19, you only have to have symptoms or a test. You don't need both. So you can be driving your bicycle down the road and you can get hit by a car and be brought into the emergency room, have a swab up your nose, have a positive test. You're a COVID-19 case, all right? Totally asymptomatic. Um, second thing they said was that test doesn't have to be validated. All right, so these PCR assays that we've been doing ever since this thing started off, uh, for those of you who don't know, those things are also operating under experimental use authorization from the FDA. Um, and they are doing that because they were never proven that they separated people who had infectious disease and had symptoms from people who didn't have infectious disease and didn't have symptoms. All right, they were never designed, they were never designed for that in the first place. They were never validated to do that. And by the way, at the end of December, they're completely going off the market because the FDA says they have a very, very high false positive rate. All right, yeah. As a matter of fact, do you wanna know how high that false positive rate is? So depending on the population you studied in, because the false positive rate will be different if you study it in places where there are very few cases than if you study it in populations there are a lot of cases, it ranges between 25 and 75%. So if you go into a nursing home full of really sick people who are gonna come down with the disease very easily, that means one out of every four tests you do is absolute garbage and they don't really have the infection. If you go into a nursing school or you go into a private school or you go into any place where they have little kids or almost nobody has it, three out of every four tests will be a false positive. So not only that, they did some other stuff that was fun. Uh, they did keep the requirement, by the way, that you could not have another test be positive. So if you had a positive influenza test and a positive COVID-19 test, you couldn't report the case as being COVID-19. To be a COVID-19 death, what you had to have, oh, thanks Andy, appreciate that. You know, it's great when you can come late to your own lecture and somebody will give you water, all right? <laughs> There's something wrong with a world like that. Um, to be a COVID-19 death, what you had to have was either symptoms or a positive test and no pulse rate. Yeah. Seriously. So you could be driving down the road on your bicycle, get hit by the car, they drag in, put a nose up there, gosh, keep pumping on his chest till we get the test back. Oh gosh, he's got a positive COVID-19 test. You're a COVID-19 death. That wasn't the worst thing they did to screw up the diagnosis of COVID-19. I know you're asking yourself, what could possibly be worse? But the answer is, they paid hospitals to make the diagnosis. So, and let me tell you one of the other things you should know about my past. I was elected to the physician board of one of the local um, health networks in the Indianapolis area. It's actually statewide. Um, I'm not allowed to tell you their name, and I'll tell you why in a second I'm not allowed to tell you their name. But sitting on that board, I got to see the inner workings of the finances of a health network. And you should know a couple things about health network finances. First of all, their margins are extremely thin, all right? They run very close to losing money every year. 
just maybe in the neighborhood of two to three percent profit at the time I was there is what they were making. Actually, they were down to one percent when I was on that board. So if you start cutting their income, that's a big deal to a health network, all right? It's not, you know, they're risking bankruptcy. Um, the other thing you need to know is what makes them balance the books is their elective surgeries. So they lose money on every uh, pneumonia that walks in the door. You get a kidney infection. Um, somebody from the nursing home comes in with a wound infection, has to be hospitalized. They're losing money on all of that. Actually, your hospital systems actually lose money on every Medicare and Medicaid patient that walks in the door. The way they keep the books balanced is they go find you people who have private insurance and they financially rip you a new one. All right? And they really like to rip you a new one on the uh, elective surgeries. And guys, I don't want you to think that they're doing this intentionally. Remember, they're losing money on Medicare and Medicaid. They got to get it somewhere. All right? So everybody wants to put a target on the back of the hospital CEO. Eh, he's not really the problem, guys. So what they did in this diagnostic little thing, they said, was, well, okay, hospitals, you have to shut off all your elective surgeries because the demon COVID going to get you. And yeah, we got to stop spread, but we'll make it up to you. We're going to give you $13,000 for every diagnosis of COVID-19 who gets, a, gets admitted. And if you can snake a tube down his throat and get him on a ventilator, we're going to give you twenty six dollars in addition to that. Ladies and gentlemen, how many people here think that doctors are so above board and beyond reproach and will just take all kinds of misery to stick to the truth no matter what happens to them? And remember, they have families. Oh, good. Nobody believes that fantasy. I'm glad to hear that. Um, let me tell you that it gets even worse than that for the doctors in these locations. Because about 15 years ago, somebody in the federal government had the really bright idea that what would be really good for the efficiency of healthcare is if we took all those independent providers who were out there working on their own and we all made them become employed by a single entity so they could share all the information and data with themselves that we told them they couldn't do with the HIPAA law. So they said, we need everybody to become employed under a single entity. So we are going to start paying people if they join what's called an accountable care organization or an ACO. And so the way they accomplished this, they said, was, well, if you're off there practicing independently, you're going to get, I think it was a 3% cut in your reimbursement. So whatever you're doing right now that we're paying you for, you're getting 3% less. But if you go join up into a great big hospital system, all being employed by that one hospital system, we'll give you 2% more. So all the physical therapists, the nurse practitioners, the doctors, financially, they had narrow margins too. You start coming out and talking about a 5% swing in income. And guys, they all went and signed up and sold their practices to hospitals. But when they sold their hospital, their practices to hospitals, the hospitals put a clause in their contract that said, if we fire you at any time for any reason, you have to move 10, sometimes 50 miles away from your location to practice. You have to stay away for sometimes as long as two years, most of the time one year. You're not allowed to tell your patients where you're going. You're not allowed to take your records with you. You're not allowed to advertise within that 10 to 20 mile radius. So guys, I gotta tell you, as a family doctor, my business capital is the faith my patients have in their access to me and the quality of my advice, which means that the hospital system now owns my practice and can take all my business capital and then fire me and I lose everything when I'm fired, all right? So in the setting of, oh, by the way, there's more. 
If you're a young doctor who just came out of medical school and you're $350,000 in debt, you can get that debt forgiven. Your federal government's so nice to you, all you have to do is work 10 years for a nonprofit like a healthcare network and we'll forgive that $350,000. But if you work nine years, 11 months, and 30 days and you get fired, you get all $350,000 back. You are an indentured servant for 10 years. 10 years where you can be indoctrinated into whatever the person who owns you wants you to do. By the way, they also control what those doctors can go study. So they have control of the continuing medical education budget, so they give this doctor sometimes $2,500, sometimes $5,000 a year that he can go take courses with, but only the courses that are approved by the ACO. So now you understand what kind of power they have over the doctor in an ACO. And that ACO is faced with financial ruin because its lifeblood has been cut off. And the way you can make up money is that you can make COVID-19 cases. So rules start to come down from hospital administrators like nobody's getting an influenza test until after we have the COVID-19 test back. I don't care if he does have symptoms, all right? Uh, you guys may have noticed if you've been looking in the news that the number of influenza cases dropped by two thirds last year. Yeah. Was that just because influenza virus went away? Mm -hmm. No. Was that just because everybody masked it up and stayed indoors? No, guys, we did that study back in 2008, and none of that had any effect on, on uh, influenza diagnosis, symptoms, hospitalization, or death. All right? Now, the reason it happened is because of selective testing. Because remember, if you walk in with symptoms of COVID-19, which are nearly identical to the symptoms of influenza, because the, the process by which you die is exactly the same between the two, kills different people in different amounts, but the process is the same, exactly the same. That means that if you come in with a test that has a 25 to 75% pulse positive rate and you don't do influenza tests, even if you do, because they have a 10% false negative rate, all right, you can get a whole bunch of people reclassified who have influenza into COVID-19. And we already had case reports of doctors who admitted that the hospital administrator had come down and said, this one looks like he's sick enough, he's got a positive test, don't send him home from the ER, admit him. We'll send him home tomorrow. We even had cases of people coming in the administrator with doctors who admitted that they thought this person didn't need a ventilator, even though he looked pretty bad. They said, look, you get a tube down his throat and you get him on a ventilator. That's 26 grand. Now, in that setting of financial coercion, how many people here think that your hospital systems diagnosed COVID-19 under the same criteria and with the same frequency and the same accuracy that they diagnosed influenza? Good, you're not a dumb group. Um, guys, I can tell you that's the best explanation for why influenza went far down. I'd love to give you that we have some other experience on this, um, but we really don't. Um, we have done some studies where we've tried to find out, hey, what is the death rate if you counted cases of COVID-19 and you tested them the same way as we do influenza or respiratory syncytial virus or something else? This works kind of hard to do in retrospect, all right? But there were some cases where they tried to do it uh, prospectively. And the data came out to say that the death rate from COVID-19 was about 0.2% of cases that are symptomatic, which is exactly the same rate you get from an average influenza year. Uh, that, by the way, is one-tenth the rate that the CDC claims. So they claim it's killing 10 times more people uh, than what the data actually supports. So that's your diagnostic accuracy question answered. 
um, and a pretty good explanation of why it's not the same as you would have liked. Um, and by the way, we do have cases, that, that thing about the bicycle accident being called COVID-19, that's documented case. <laughs> it's not rare. Actually, in one of the counties in uh, California, they had to reduce their counts of COVID-19 by 40% when they went through them and looked at the way that there's 40%. Yeah, I saw those eyebrows go up. That's what my eyebrows did when I saw that number too. That is how hugely inaccurate this thing has happened. Now, you can answer the, try and answer the question of why. Um, why would we do this differently? Um, you know, I've never even seen the seed to give an explanation for why it did that. Um, the one thing that doesn't work as an explanation is, well, it was an emergency. All right? Is there a reason to change the definition of pregnancy in the middle of a C-section? Uh, you know, guys, if you're trying to get accurate data so you can allocate resources accurately to the problems in the proper scale that they have, there's no reason to change your diagnosis for one only. And we've seen a lot of things um, justified by the fact that it was an emergency, but that one lady will not pass the smell test. All right, and I can't get it there past the smell test one way or the other. Okay, so that's diagnostic accuracy. Um, with some really inflated numbers. Anybody who says that we've had 600,000 people die from COVID-19 in the United States, um, I'm gonna have to ask you, which diagnosis of COVID-19 are you using? Yeah. Uh, if you're gonna use the same diagnostic criteria we use for every other infectious disease, I'd say it's probably about a third then. All right? Um, yet, Dr. Fauci continues to use that number. Let's go to something else a little bit more interesting, a little bit more uh, uh, controversial. Um, how about the steps we took to prevent spread? Now, before we get to those, the first thing we have to ask, our, ask ourselves is, does it make any difference if you prevent spread? Or is it possible to do? All right. So it might be interesting to see whether or not I can give birth to a baby before the end of the night. How many people here think I can do that? Oh, good. All right. You are an intelligent audience. Um, you should know uh, that at the time that the CDC started making recommendations for viral avoidance measures in March of 2020, we had already identified four different species of mammals that became infected with COVID-19 and shed virus. Two of those were known to be domestic, cats and dogs. That number is now up to over 20 species, and at least five are domestic, um, including mink and deer. Uh, I can't remember the other one's domestic. Uh, but I can tell you that because of the way this virus targets a cell and how it gets into a cell, there is probably no mammal on Earth that cannot be infected with COVID-19. I'm not even sure there's a mammal in the ocean can't be infected with COVID-19, which means it has reservoirs, all right? Which means that even if you could simultaneously achieve 100% herd immunity in the United States, the virus would not go away. Um, how effective have we been getting influenza to go away? Common cold, respiratory syncytial virus, yeah. Um, and guys, we knew at the time in March that the CDC started recommending viral avoidance measures that this thing was not gonna matter in the long run. It couldn't possibly. Every human being is at some point gonna to have to get immunity to COVID-19, however you wanna get it. You're either gonna get it or you're going six feet under, all right? And by the way, you contribute to herd immunity, whether you get a vaccine immunity, non-vaccine immunity, or you just die, whichever way you choose to handle COVID-19, you're contributing to herd immunity, all right? Herd immunity is a passive state that is achieved. It is not a goal that you go out to set out for. And by the way, herd immunity is not permanent either, all right? 
you can get immunity to COVID-19. I can do things that ruin your immune system and you will lose your immunity and the herd immunity will start to go down again. So the first thing you had to ask before you even decided to do any viral avoidance measures was, does it make any sense to do viral avoidance measures? What could possibly make it make sense? Unless you had something that was gonna come down the pipe that you had in your mind that might be beneficial to you if you but it were able to put it off a little bit longer or if you were able to make people realize that they might 98.8% of the time survive this thing anyway. All right? Um, so, okay. I'm going to maintain that we never had a reason to do these generalized lockdowns. We never had a reason to do contact testing. We never have a reason to do quarantining. After all, remember the virus is shed by people um, who are infected without symptoms. All right? Let's go into a little mechanics, because I'm, I'm a geek, all right? And if we understand mechanics, and you geek out with me a second, some of the rest of this makes sense, and some of the arguments of the other side may make less sense to you. So, people have heard about cough and sneeze, and that goes out six feet, and then the air settles and all of that, right? Is that a true statement for, it, for a spread of COVID-19? It is, all right? Uh, we call those droplets, all right? The droplets do fall out and settle down to the ground. Uh, does anybody know what percent of the virus that a human being who is infected sheds with or without symptoms come out as droplets? It's about 0.4%. Over 99% of the virus that's going to come out of your body is going to come out as what we call aerosols. Now, aerosols are very small, um, usually about one micron or less. And one of the, my favorite games I've seen in the masks group is to have people come out and say, oh, the masks filter aerosols. And we consider aerosols to be anything five microns or smaller. Um, okay, but they're not that big when they come out in an aerosol particle with COVID-19. Uh, the biggest I've seen anybody say we found an aerosol particle from COVID-19 is one micron. Most of the time they quote 0.5 or 0.1 microns in diameter. All right. That particle, by the way, comes out not with a cough and a sneeze. That comes out just by breathing. All right. It is so small it never settles out of the air. Its own Brownian motion is enough to suspend it in air and it will diffuse through the air, just like a bad smell, uh, like when Dr. Fauci's talking. Um, <laughs> sorry, I like to throw jokes in from time to time. And I sometimes get unbalanced. I will apologize for that. Um, anyway, so these things diffuse. And if you're outside, you never have to worry about it because they diffuse off and the concentration of air is so high that the concentration never gets high enough that you can get a minimum infectious dose to give somebody a disease. About the only way you can get it outside is if I come up and I sneeze right in your face, all right? That is very rare in the transmission of a viral respiratory pathogen, all right? Usually the way it happens is somebody has gone inside of a building where the air is continuously recirculated and he's in there for a period of time and he keeps putting out virus and putting out virus and putting out virus. And there's 10 of us in there and we're all asymptomatically infected. We put out virus and put out virus and the concentration of virus in the air grows long enough, high enough that finally that one guy with a skunky immune system comes down with disease. And now he puts out even more virus and the concentration goes higher, all right? So do masks change any of that? Well, let's chase the worst case scenario, which is cloth mask on my website, which is www.purehealthmed.com backslash COVID-19 info. You will actually find a study on there on cloth mask, which shows not only are they totally worthless, but they don't even stop the great big droplets. Um, some of the smaller, dro the bigger droplets they get, but the small droplets go right through them. 
all right? And remember, those droplets, they're less than 1% of the virus coming out of that human being, all right? How about an N95 mask, all right? N95 mask good down to five microns. How big's COVID-19 particle? One micron, 0.5 microns, 0.1 microns. Um, is some of that gonna get caught up coming through the filter of the N95 mask? Some of it is, all right? Um, N95 mask, by the way, do you know where that N95, 95% filtering, do you know where that comes from, what they're used for? That's 95% of dust particles. Yes, yeah, that's what they're, they're, that's the industrial rating you have to have for somebody to go work in a work zone, all right? Um, so they probably do protect carpenters pretty well from sawdust, um, but not so good for viruses. Have you ever, ever tried to wear an N95 mask for a long period of time? Hey, raise your hand if you've had to wear one. Do you get headaches? Do you feel lousy after? Yeah, that's not comfortable, is it? All right. And by the way, that's just not your opinion. We have data on that, that they raise the risk of, um, of uh, headaches. They actually raise blood pressure. They actually lower your oxygen level and raise your CO2 level. Um, how about a regular surgical mask? All right. Do those things filter down to the, no, they don't even filter that. You know the biggest problem with the surgical mask is they're not fitted and sealed all the way around your body. They have gaps, all right? So there's a rule called Bernoulli's equation which talks about the resistance to flow of a gas or a liquid. And uh, they always like to go out the places they get the least resistance and they're not gonna go through the filter of that mask if they can get out the gaps. Um, it takes three square centimeters of gap around a mask to make the filter function of a surgical mask drop to zero. That's that much surface area, ladies and gentlemen. If you look at what's going up here, steaming up your glasses, if you look at what's coming out here at the sides, especially when you put these on a kid who isn't gonna wear them right, I can tell you that this daggone thing starts leaking, most of the air goes right out the side, back into the heating and air conditioning system so you can all get it at the same time, all right? Um, so, that's all theoretical. Are there any studies that have been done to see whether or not um, that mask mandates? And by the way, I want to stress, we're not arguing about wearing masks or not. You want to wear a mask, wear a mask, all right? Doesn't care if I can show the science says it doesn't work. If you say, Dan, I'm more comfortable with masks today, I'm like, power to you, baby, have a mask. <laughs> yeah, it's mask mandates you care about, right? Because if what we're gonna do is say, look, witch, you're putting a mask on today, daggone it, you're making her get in danger. If we're gonna do that, we have to have some data that says that the mandate that we're going to force her to do that somehow makes a difference, right? Do you have any data on that? Well, guys, we've seen some studies presented where they tried to say they had some data like that. Uh, one presented by the CDC from the Heritage Foundation where they ignored all the data that would have said the thing didn't work. Heritage Foundation caught them on that, by the way, added in the data, did the calculation again, and it didn't work. Uh, saw a study from a group called Health Policy where they did a statistical analysis on people who are in the mandated areas and the non-mandated areas and said, oh, in the mandated areas, the case rate went down more than it did in the non-mandated areas. Therefore, it made a difference between the two places. Unfortunately, when I overlaid those two curves on their own thing, it came back and said, no, statistically, there was absolutely no difference between those curves. And by the way, knowing that you cannot just see them differently changing and conclude that they were different from each other is a sophomore level biology mistake, all right? That is how simplistic a, a statistical error that is, all right? Even if I were to give them in that study, all right, let's just ignore the fact that statistically there was no difference between the two. 
Let's just say that was a statistic, the difference. All right, maybe it's not statistically significant. Man, if we'd just done more locations, we'd have found a real thing. It would have been statistically significant difference. You know how much it reduced the diagnosis rate? 1%. Do you know how long it reduced the diagnosis rate by 1%? Five days. Yeah. Um, saw another study done where they said, hey, we're going to look at all the mass places in Georgia and said, hey, look at this. We found there was a statistically significant reduction in the places that had mask mandates. But those same places were also using ventilation and filtration methods, meaning they opened up all the windows, were running things through sterilizers through the air, had purification filters on the air. So they're actually taking out all the virus that way to make sure the air got more pure. And uh, so what they did was a, uni a univariate uh, independent analysis of multiple dependent variables. That's another sophomore level biology statistics mistake that you can guarantee isn't going to work right. All right. It's like going in and seeing uh, do men who take birth control pills have ha healthier babies uh, than men who don't use uh, birth control pills. <laughs> okay, guys, you got another variable, which is this gender thing you got to adjust for in there, or you're going to get garbage data out. So mostly what I tell people when I look at that study is what that proves is that school systems that are so nervous about COVID-19 that they'll order masks. They'll also filter their air and open their windows, which, by the way, those things have been shown to reduce viral load in buildings. Those things have. So if you already know that one variable has an effect, to analyze another variable that associates with it and never adjust for the known effective variable, um, I would have to tell you that that is better explained by deceit than it is by naivete. Um, if I had submitted that during my senior year of undergraduate school to my biology professors, I would have expected them to turn me over the seat and paddle me and tell me to go back and try again. That's pretty novice, all right? Um, so there is a very round number you should know, which is the number of properly adjudicated mandate studies that show a reduction in the uh, case rate of COVID-19. And that very round number is zero, all right? I've never seen one that did not have those errors associated with its calculation. Um, there's another study that you do need to know about because you're probably going to hear people talking about the Bangladesh study. Um, this study they took a group of people and they said, well, we're going to have areas of the country that we don't do any special efforts in. We're going to have other areas of the country. We go out and hand out masks and really hang on people and try and get them to wear masks and say, hey, you ought to wear a mask. And, and then we're going to track and we're going to make sure if they do wear the mask more, ask them to do all that. We're going to actually do the science right on this and see if this makes a difference in symptomatic cases of COVID-19. Um, and it did find a difference. All right. Um, there's a 1% reduction in the risk of getting a symptomatic COVID-19 case. Some things you ought to know about that. Um, the population density of Bangladesh is much higher than the United States, so they shed more virus in a given place. Second of all, it's not a mandate study. Everybody was willing to comply with that thing. And by the way, they tripled the rate of mask use in the, in the treatment group. They, they went from 17% mask in the no treatment to 47% mask use and got a 1% reduction. But you wonder the most interesting thing about that study? It had absolutely no effect on anybody under the age of 50. You put masks on kids, teenagers, young adults, it didn't reduce bupkis. So it's not a mandate study. It's a well done study, but it's not a mandate study. And if what you wanted to do is have a mandate for the general population, you got zip. 
all right? And I have yet to see a single study that had been done properly and, and adjudicated properly for all known variables that relate to each other. I've never seen it done properly yet and seen a study that came out with a result. We do have some randomized blinded trials, excuse me, randomized trials with masking. Can't really do a blinded trial. But we did say, hey, you guys are all going to wear masks and uh, cootie protection. And you guys are going to be cavalier as you want to be. We did this with influenza back in 2008. Like I said, no effect in those studies that were done. Um, are there harms to masks? Uh, well, I already said, we already know that the uh, carbon dioxide level goes up and the oxygen level goes down. And by the way, there is a very well done study in children that shows that it's, uh, it comes on faster and happens to a higher degree in children than it does in adults. And the smaller the child, the faster it comes on and the higher the degree that it occurs. Now, you're going to hear people say that study was retracted. All right. So that means it was peer reviewed. Some people who are also doctors and like to read research looked it over and said, oh, this is good. We're going to let it published by JAMA Pediatrics. And then JAMA Pediatrics said, well, we're going to retract the article. Now, I'm going to just mention this for a fact that JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet are mostly paid for by the ads from drug manufacturers and device um, manufacturers. So there might be a financial conflict of interest here. The technique that was used by the gentleman who published that mass study that was retracted had published previous studies on adults and other people had used the exact same technique in adults and they got published and they weren't retracted. Um, I read the article and the technique on how it was done. I didn't see any flaws with it. And apparently neither did the peer reviewers who put it out the first time. But I'm going to be up front and tell you guys that the article was retracted and let you read it for yourself. It's on my website. And then you can make your own decision of whether you thought this trial was so badly done. Does it matter? What happens if I drive up your carbon dioxide level and lower your oxygen level? Well, it turns out your brain actually pays pretty close attention to whether you're suffocating or not. And when you start to suffocate, it activates a part of your brain called the amygdala hippocampus complex. That's the thing that runs your fight or flight response. So why does that make a difference? Well, if I asked this young lady right now to look at my clothing and memorize everything I was wearing, if I had her close her eyes and I said, what color is my jacket? She would probably be able to tell me that I'm wearing a navy blue jacket. But then if I walked over her with her eyes closed, and I said, you keep your eyes closed, now open them, and I had a shotgun in your face and a knife in one hand and an angry look on my face, and said, what color are my shoes or I'll cut your goddamn throat open? Do you think she's going to come up with the color of my shoes? No, because the hippocampus amygdala complex is actually going to block all memories that are not necessary to solving this immediate problem that is discovered about the angry man with the knife and the gun. Which means, ladies and gentlemen, it makes you so you don't recall memories right, and you don't learn and assimilate memories right. And that's an effect that always happens anytime you raise somebody's carbon dioxide level and lower their oxygen level. If you don't believe me, try and read a poem and enjoy it while I'm strangling you. All right? Does it require a great big list of letters behind my name for that to make sense? It's not as great an effect as if I'm strangling you. But I have to tell you, I have never met a child that I thought had so much knowledge they could afford to lose a little bit more. So is there other risks to masking? Well, it turns out uh, that there's a big deprivation of sensation. You guys may not be aware of this, but human beings actually communicate more through their body language and their facial expressions than they do from the sounds that come from their voice. You and I have more facial expression muscles than any other species in the world. And by the way, there's no other species that's anywhere close, all right? And most of those low, lay below the level of the eyes. So you've just thrown a child into sensory deprivation, all right? 
Has everybody seen what sensory deprivation does to a gorilla? If you put him in an unpainted room, his brain gets real smooth, he becomes suicidal, he starts harming himself. All right, that's right. So, is the effect that great when you take a child and sensory deprive him? No, it's not as great. Is it there? Yeah, the effect's there. It can't not be there. So, these are the harms that we know of. Doesn't even get into the infections because you know how many times kids actually change those masks? Uh -uh. And we've already studied them. They are loaded with germs by the end of the day, guys. Surgeons don't wear a mask and stay in one mask for days and days at a time. They don't keep using the same mask surgery after surgery after surgery. All right, that doesn't happen. Um, so when you put all this together, oh, by the way, there's been this other argument. That, well, okay, so you make the kid a little bit more retarded. That's not a big deal. He'll just learn it later. Uh, there's a disease called amblyopia. If I take one of your eyes when you're an infant and I block that eye or make it so it can't see right, and I do it for about six months of your life, after that I can take the block off and your brain will never learn how to use that eye. You will forever be unable to use that eye. It'll get 2200 vision and never better. So when they say, oh, we'll just relearn it, the answer is no, we've already studied that. You can actually retard the learning of a child and they don't learn it later, all right? If they are trying to interpret whether I am angry or I'm sad based upon my facial expressions and they grow up deprived of that information for a long enough period of time, they will not as firmly learn how to use that later on. And I've spoken with two speech therapists who say the exact same thing. Remember that when they're learning to speak, they are watching your facial expression, not just listening to what you say, and you can retard their speech development with this, and they do not get it all back later. So, there's another big study, you need, another big number you need to know which would answer the most important question, because even if we could show that there was a reduction of 1% lasting five days in elderly people using masks, even if we could show that, we would have to show that those benefits were not outweighed by the risks that we know they carry. After all, if I'm going to give you chemotherapy, am I allowed to make you barf, let your hair fall out, and ruin your kidneys unless I can show that you're going to live longer because I do that, right? We don't approve any chemotherapy therapeutic agents unless they can show that overall death is at least not harmed. How many studies are there that show that universal masking mandates do not cause harm? that they actually have at least zero change in death rate, at least zero change in hospitalization rate. How many studies show that with masking of mandates? Zero. Not a single one. All of this has been the CDC's best guess, despite knowing that there was no possible way to make this virus go away with avoidance measures. As a matter of fact, the Declaration of Great Barrington People, which was signed by now up to 50, 3,000, 57,000 health scientists, um, public health specialists, and practicing physicians, 43,000 of them practicing physicians and providers, all came out and said the only thing that makes sense to do is to have what we call focused protection, meaning that what we're going to do is take the vulnerable people in the, in, in the population. And by the way, for COVID-19, it's very easy to identify those, easier than it is with influenza. And we're going to offer, not force, but offer these people virus avoidance measures while the rest of us out here who aren't going to get smoked by this thing go off and get our immunity to this thing and then when we've got our immunity it will reduce the transmission and we could then let the people who are being protected through focus protection come back out. All right, That's what we do for influenza, it's what we do for common colds, what we do for all the respiratory pathogens that come out and yet with all of our experience before this the CDC decided to ignore all of that and tell you to lock down, go into masks, 
and ruin the economy. Oh, by the way, I forgot to even mention about the suicidality rate going up simply because bankrupt people like to kill themselves. Um, and that didn't get calculated in here at all. As a matter of fact, if you really like some numbers, if you looked at the increase in teen suicides that occurred in California um, after March of, uh, for the 12 months after March of 2020, the number of teen suicides was actually greater than the death of all children from COVID-19 in California for the entire 12 months after the lockdown occurred. That's right. So and that's just suicide, teen suicide. Doesn't even go to all the other people who committed suicide or look at anything else, right? Doesn't even look at all the other kids of other ages who might have committed suicide. Um, so if somebody says that our um, government did really well on its recommendations for viral avoidance measures, well, I'm gonna let you make your decision. I can tell you I'm not impressed. By the way, contact tracing, when you have going to a school that's got a 75% false positive rate, how many of the people you quarantine away are you actually doing anything at all? Right, it's very low. And yet, they're out of school, they're interacting with their peers, they're getting an inferior education. Most education people said they lost an entire year, which they're not gonna get back. Um, so guys, I gotta tell you, and I think most Americans knew this, because I can tell you that video did not get 40 million hits worldwide, because I'm the best looking doctor, the smartest doctor, or the best speaking doctor. That video got 40 million hits because everybody in the world looked at this and said, well, this never did make any sense. I'm glad somebody said that. Because, um, guys, it never did make any sense. Knowing what I know about rival respiratory disease and its transmission, there was never a reason to believe it was ever going to make any difference whatsoever. Um, yet, that was the decision that came out, and you got handed by your CDC, and was even enforced by your CDC through the accountable care organizations and its control of your hospital systems. Um, by the way, the other thing you need to know is state boards of health. You know, why would they go along with this? Well, a lot of their funding comes from the federal government and can be shut off if the federal government says these are the recommendations. You don't have to follow them, but if you don't, we're just going to have to take that money and put that someplace else. And so your Indiana Department of Health, probably, I don't know because they haven't reduced their finances, but I got to believe that they had money on the line from this because I can tell you the federal government's done in other places where it said, hey, you don't have to follow my rules. I'll just bankrupt you if you don't. All right. That's the federal government's modus operandi. Try and go somewhere in the state of Indiana right now and fill a prescription for ivermectin and you'll find that to be true. Okay. Well, let's start talking about doing something about the disease itself and get a little geeky because I like to get geeky. And Andy, if this thing's all set up to run, I bet I just push one of these buttons, don't I? Nope, that ain't it. Nope, that ain't it. Andy, help me. <laughs> Andy, help me. Oh, Andy. Andy. <laughs> make, make it go, Andy. Make it go. There we go. Let's uh... It's been up for a long time. So. Okay. So let me click out of it for a second. While he's doing that, um, everybody's heard antibodies fight infections, right? They fight every infection? No. Antibodies are really good at fighting bacterial extracellular infections. That means bugs that stay outside your cells, just crawling in between the cells. Okay. Now it's ready to go. Uh, watch my button I push. Remember, I'm a, I'm a chemistry geek, not a technology geek. Forward and backward. Oh, okay, even I can do that then, all right? So, 
Let me show you how you actually fight a virus infection. Guys, this is very schematic. I am not going to try and make this the, uh, in, I'm not going to try and turn you into an immunologist. We have a couple doctors here today, and I was promised I would have the opportunity to really bore them a little bit, so I'm going to take them down with me. So here you got some cells right here. You got some virus growing in them, and the first thing these cells start doing is they make these things called inflammatory cytokines. And inflammatory cytokines do two things. First thing they do is they tell all the other cells, when that guy's got virus, he tells this one, hey, I'm sick. And the way I'm sick is that I have a virus infection, so you change your cell membrane so that you don't let cooties get into you so easy. You become real stiff. And they start releasing all this in the tissues, but there's a problem when you do that. These cells, when they get all the stuff that tells them get stiff, they don't do their job so well. So like if you're a lung cell and you get inflammatory cytokines released around you, you don't do such a good job of lunging, which means you really want to control this pretty well or you could make the entire freaking lung not work right. Okay? Does anybody know what, uh, when you get, uh, when you die from COVID-19, what it is you die from? An unregulated expression of these cytokines that makes all your lung cells just quit working so you don't exchange oxygen very well. That's why your oxygen saturations go down. It is not that they're all filling up with virus and dying, all right? It is your own inflammatory regulation, your own immune system that gets you killed. Yeah, that's the major way you die. So you got some viruses get into cells and what they do is they start putting off these little proteins on their surface that says, hey, I've got the particular chemical change that happens when I get a virus infection. And then our friend the natural killer cell moves in and Mr. Natural Killer Cell is a white blood cell who doesn't care what is going on in a cell. He comes up to a cell and says, hey, are you a healthy cell? And when the cell says, no, I'm not a healthy cell, Mr. Natural Killer Cell goes in there and he makes that cell commit apoptosis. So what's apoptosis? That's programmed cell death. Every one of these cells has built into it some genes that are suicide genes. Mr. Natural Killer Cell can turn them on and when he does that, the cell starts to digest all of its own genetic material and all the viral genetic material too. And as he digests all of that and that cell dies, our friend the macrophage moves in and he says, oh, look at this. Here's a cell that's just committed apoptosis. It's got all the little proteins on its surface to tell me that it was a virus infected cell that committed apoptosis. Well, with that information, I'm gonna take all those little proteins from that virus that I see you're sticking on this, and I am gonna display them on my cell surface, and I'm gonna take them out to my friends, the T helper cells. So T helper cells, by the way, this part in here is all what we call the innate immune system. It doesn't even have to know what virus it's fighting. All right, all it says is something virus, gonna go kill it the way we kill viruses. But then this guy goes out and he presents it to T helper cells and T helper cells, they only are programmed to attack one particular protein or chemical moiety. But the neat thing here is that these T helper cells get told by this macrophage, not only is this the protein I'm presenting you, but I got this from a cell that committed apoptosis and it did it because it had viral physiology. And that is what tells the T helper cell to become a T helper one cell. And a T helper one cell then starts making these things called cytotoxic T cells. And cytotoxic T cells are actually what fights a virus infection because cytotoxic T cells, they go crawling in between all the cells of your body. They're not in the bloodstream. They're crawling between all the cells. And they come up to another cell that's got one of those proteins on it that they're designed for. And he says, well, if you're gonna do that, then you get to commit apoptosis too. And he makes that cell kill itself and he sends a signal back to the T helper one cell that says, I found one, make more. And you get more cytotoxic T cells that generate very quickly. And this is an advance, by the way, that only later mammals um, actually have. Um, and some of the birds, uh, by the time you're getting down to reptiles, they got a few reptiles that have it. This is a fairly new evolutionary arrangement that you and I have. 
that you can rapidly get this huge number of cytotoxic T cells to expand and go in to find all the virus infected cells and smoke them before you can get so many cytokines made that the tissue doesn't work right. And I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, if this part of the immune system is doing its thing right, the natural killer cells are good and they're wiping this stuff out, and these guys do their things right, you will very frequently no, make no antibodies at all. And that's because you get all of this smoke so quickly that there's not much stimulation in the immune system to tell it that you might benefit from having an antibody made. Because when you're fighting virus infections, antibodies actually stay in the bloodstream. They don't come out and get in between all these cells here where all the action is. And remember, viruses actually only do anything when they get into a cell, right? So the only way that you're actually going to get antibodies made in the first infection is if you're somebody like German measles. So why is German measles so neat? Well, first of all, German measles causes disease in 95% of people that it infects. Now, I want you to understand what that means. That means only 5% of people have a good enough immune system they can get infected with German measles virus and not come down with symptoms, all right? Good question you should ask yourself. What percentage of people who get infected with COVID-19 virus come down with symptoms? Does anybody know the answer to that? It's about 70% of people who get infected have no symptoms at all. Now, in this equation that determines whether you're going to get sick, what's the big variable? The pathogen or the immune system? Remember, the pathogen's the same in the 30% who get infected and get symptoms and in the 70% who get infected and don't, right? Yeah, so it's the immune system. And if this part's working really good, this is probably going to stop that way on your first exposure. Now, if your first exposure, this is not working so good, and after about five, seven days of having this go on, you actually get some virus to go off into the bloodstream. As other tissues in the body start to become infected, they will start to talk to the immune system cells. And by the way, there's one other thing I forgot to tell you that macrophage is telling these T helper cells. He's saying, oh, not only are these things apoptotic cells from a virus infection, these are lung cells. This thing's actually telling these guys where the tissue that they're infected with is. By the way, a neat study was done showed if you took and gave an infection in the right thumb and you had a bunch of white blood cells that went into the right thumb for that infection, if you then took them out, got the guy cured, and injected them in the left thumb, they went through the body back over to the right thumb. That's how smart your immune system is and how complicated this thing is rigged. But if things get out of the, the, rest of the lung and now this, and they get out in the bloodstream and skin cells start getting infected, liver cells start getting infected and all of that, those other tissues start saying, hey, I got cootie in me too. And they send off signals. And then these T helper cells will say, oh, well, if there's other tissues infected, I will actually start to make some antibodies. And instead, I will become a Th2 cell and drive an antibody to a B cell to make antibodies. And it will make things like IgM and IgG, which float through the bloodstream looking for cooties to stop spread. Why does that matter? Because every T helper cell has to decide whether it's going to become a T helper 1 cell or a T helper 2 cell. And if you start driving things to making antibodies, you have to take away the number of cytotoxic T cells. So your immune system very carefully controls this process because it does not want to make antibodies unless the virus is out in the bloodstream. Because if it does, it reduces its ability to fight in the lung where things got in. Which means that if I had a way to screw this up and make you start making lots of antibodies and not make cytotoxic T cells, 
I would actually make you fight the infection in the lung worse. And if you did that, you would shed more virus for a longer period of time and your lungs would get sicker. Which means that if I have a way to do this, I can actually make you go from the 70% to the 30%, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes this will happen with your second infection, all right? Even if you handled it well, the body will say, oh, okay, if it's gonna come back and we get a second one, we'll go and make antibodies. But even then it regulates it because when it's got the signals that says we're fighting virus, it knows that this is what wins the war. This does not win the war. That slows the battle down to the speed that these guys can handle it. 